Hello and welcome to That Band Life. I'm Jeff Young, a teacher from Carmel, Indiana. And I'm Bobby Lambert, director of bands at Wando High School in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. That Band Life, a podcast about making our careers as music educators more fulfilling so we can be happier, healthier, more productive, and more creative. Well, this week we are honored to talk to Mr. Richard Crane. He is, among many things, the president of the Midwest Band and Orchestra Clinic. Uh, usually Bobby and I will do our introductions and then go right into the interview, but we wanted to, uh, we actually have already done the interview this evening and we wanted to go back and do this intro correctly and, and properly because uh, honestly, one of my favorite interviews, if not the favorite interview we've done on this show, and I really think our listeners uh, are, are in for a treat. Yeah, if, if you've never met Richard Crane, he is incredibly profound, he's incredibly um, proficient at what he does when you hear all the things he does but I was just telling Jeff when it comes to humility he corners the market on that because of the sincerity and it's you know we've been around great people and when you get behind closed doors it's you know some of that facade goes away not with Richard Crane what you see is what you get and it's one of the kindest gentlest human beings on the planet you know he retired in 2000 20 years ago, he retired from teaching where he was in the spring ISD. And if you remember the talking of the spring 93 marching band show, he was part of that. After he taught, though, for many years, he became the fine arts coordinator in the spring district. And so while he was out of the classroom, he was actually helping to create some of the powerhouses that we know all about in Texas. But then go past that. One of the biggest things that we know he's done is to help the National Concert Band Festival that Bands of America presents now. And he was pivotal in setting that up from the ground up. He and his wife, Gail, really set the wheels in motion and and made that happen for the first few years. Then he becomes president of the Midwest Clinic, but well, actually he becomes a board member of the Midwest Clinic, vice president, and then president of the Midwest Clinic. Then you go into all the things that he's done with TMEA, TBA, Phi Beta Mu. And if, for those of you who don't know, that's a, a very prestigious uh, band director of fraternity that's uh, very well known. But he's not just a member. He's part of the international board of that at one point in his career. If you if you can name it, Richard Crane has done it, including having incredible band directors come out of his program. He's going to talk about that in the the program. I hope you just keep your ears peeled for his famous, now famous, first chair trumpet player when he played at Midwest. I think one of the things that you're going to also hear is he will talk about thanking others and being with others and and one of the things that's so powerful about his story is his wife gail and how they together were really uh, a team when it comes to all these things that we're talking about and he mentions that near the end so keep your ears open for just one of the best interviews i think we've ever done the, the bulk of the interview is about the Midwest Clinic and what this virtual clinic is going to be and why you should go if you've never gone or why you should go if you've gone for the past several decades. It has something to offer for everyone and I think it's going to be a pretty special event. Uh, and so he's going to explain a little bit more about what that is and how the Midwest Clinic came to be. So there's just this one's chock full of great stuff. We hope you certainly enjoy. Before we begin, I want to tell you about the Dynamic Marching Shop. 
This podcast is coming to you ad-free, and one way you can support us is by visiting our website, dynamicmarching.com. Sign up for some or all of our awesome courses and instructional videos. You can also purchase products through our store at some of the most discounted prices on the web on things like shoes, rifles, podiums, megavoxes, and, of course, flagpoles. I know that many times you just continue to order products from the same people every year, but if you look at our prices, you might change your mind. We even offer deeper discounts on large orders. Please give us a chance to win your business. And before I hand this off to Bobby, I must say, first of all, that the Midwest Clinic, for me, uh, I see it as a mountaintop moment in my career, and I know Bobby, you would agree. Bobby and I had the opportunity to present at Midwest one time, and it was the most frightening and awesome experience. And uh, just being able to speak to a packed room of people from all over the country I'll, I'll never forget that moment, and I got to experience Bobby and Wando performing last year at Midwest, and again, just something I'll never forget. <sighs> Mr. Crane, you you know you you definitely honors by coming tonight, and of course we want to hear about the Midwest Clinic and how you came to be a part of that, and and then we'll eventually get to what that is going to be this year because I know a lot of people are, are questioning. What, what, what can that possibly be? So first of all, welcome to the show and tell us how the Midwest clinic came to be. And then maybe how you came to the Midwest clinic. Uh, can we just end the, end the interview now? So because of that introduction, it's going to be all down. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's that. not. I'd just like it's... to stop right now and, just, <laughs> and not confirm what people only suspect. Uh, <laughs> I forgot your question. <laughs> so, I so how did the, this guy? Uh, so, so the Midwest Clinic, if I'm not mistaken, 1946, correct right. in Chicago. Right. Tell tell us a little bit of the history of the Midwest Clinic. Well, some people think that I was there then, but I actually was not. <laughs> no, <laughs> you know when you think about it, uh, that was only less than a year and a half after the end of World War II. Right. So uh, things had really still struggling to get back to what would be considered normal. You know, that was their pandemic, you might uh, say. But uh, also the, the Midwest, all across the Midwest, was really a hotbed, if you will, of band activity. Uh, McAllister down south of, of Chicago there and uh, back in the 30s and 40s, Ravelli and Yoder, uh, all these people... Uh, had outstanding band programs then, and they were recovering from, from World War II. And also, the publishing industry was trying to recover too. Today, we have, you cannot count the number of composers and new arrangements coming out every year. They're just a plethora of, of choices. Well, in those days, there was not that, those kind of choices. So they wanted to get together and basically have a, a reading clinic. And so that's how it began. And uh, not very many people, I think, attended that year. I don't think they had just a fair handful of exhibitors. They talked into showing up there to help them. So at the very humble beginnings, uh, and it was not in the Hilton then, it was one of the other hotels, may have been in the Sherman House. And so they got together uh, just for that purpose. And then it grew from there, it showed interest and uh, drew people from other parts of the country, but it was pretty much localized to the Midwest in those days. And interestingly, uh, 
in the 60s and 70s, they would show on a screen the conductor's score as the band on stage played, uh, hmm. which was really interesting. And sometimes the whoever was operating that didn't quite turn the pages in time and so forth. <laughs> so that added a, another dimension of entertainment to it. Uh, and uh, then in the it finally went through a couple of hotels, ended up in the Hilton Hotel, Conrad Hilton, and stayed there for a good while. A couple of years, it was uh, in the Hyatt down along the, the river downtown uh, as the, the uh, Hilton was being renovated. And then we were back to uh, the Hilton. And in, 19, uh, in 2007, we began to look at alternatives. We were courted by the city of Indianapolis, for instance, to move there. We were running out of room, gentlemen, and we were had room for only 550 exhibit booths, not company, but just booths. Uh, so we really needed to expand in some way. And some of those booths, as you remember, were stuck in alcoves around. Right. Uh, and it was, it was just, uh, we were outgrowing it and places to uh, have the clinic sessions on that mezzanine level third floor was uh, limited to four or five places so uh mccormick place the old mccormick place was not really a good place for us to go it began to show its age but they uh, started construction on the west so we went over there in hard hats and looked at it and i remember john whitwell saying you know the acoustics in this grand ballroom are better than with nothing being done to it than what we have in the International Ballroom, which if you remember was a lot of air exchange right. going on and uh, that sort of thing, uh, extraneous noises that we had to deal with. So we moved to, uh, and then in 2008, uh, we decided uh, to move. And that was, 2008 was the last year. 2009 was the first year at McCormick Place. I have to step in here just for a second because I've, I've heard that as well. People saying, well, it, it's not the same. You know what? You're, you're right. It, it is a little bit different. But the thing that I love about the being at the McCormick Place is you can actually attend two or three different sessions kind of at, at the same time. Whereas before, you know, you were you were in the session and if it maybe didn't pertain to you or you kind of felt like you knew what was going on, you were kind of out of luck. You had too far to go to get to maybe the Palmer house or, uh, right. you know, one of the other places. So uh, that's one of the things I've really enjoyed about it being there and the number of, uh, how many booths do you have now? Oh, I got us, uh, over 800. Yeah. I was going to say, I, th I thought you uh, might even be approaching finally, two years ago, expanded into the second half of the exhibit hall. So we have the whole exhibit hall there at McCormick right. place now. And, we, it can, we can expand further because with the back of the hall still is some space back there that we have the product showcase and we can expand into that if we wanted to. But I will say this, some old timers uh, didn't forgive us until about four or five years ago. <laughs> <laughs> right on, and, right uh, on. I remember Ray Kramer saying, yeah, I think they finally said, yeah, I think it was the right move. Well, yes. the nostalgia, uh, I've wanted to do, I don't drink. But there are more stories about knowledge being exchanged in the uh, bar at the Hilton than you can ever imagine. I wanted to somehow replicate that on this virtual Midwest, but we're not able to do that. Uh, <laughs> I have a feeling people will do. 
people will take care of that on their own if they wish. Oh, <laughs> if they so choose. If they so choose. Jeff, what were you, what were you saying? I was going to say for those listeners who didn't attend the Midwest clinic when it was at the Hilton towers in Chicago, the, the basement level where all the exhibitors were by the, by 2007 or so it was jam packed, hot. And, and, and it was like when you were down there, it it kind of felt like overwhelming. (laughs) Yes. And then moving that to McCormick's place is like, ah, you can breathe and it's still loud and, and you still have people trying to play trumpets really high all the time and playing drums really <laughs> loud, but it, it's so much more open now and airy and light and it, it definitely has a different feel in a good way. Yeah. We, we try to have a loud side and a, a quiet side, but it doesn't always work. <laughs> uh, actually, uh, back in the 70s and 80s, you did not have to, and before that, there was no registration fee. Wow. Because you the overhead was hardly any overhead, and the exhibitors uh, carried a lot of that. Because I remember going and filling out my card, and that was it. I said, well, where do I pay? And they said, well, there's no pay. You don't pay. Then it became more and more expensive, the overheads and paying for different services that we had to, to go to a registration fee. But that was in the early days. Well, how did you come to being on the board of directors? And I, I read that, you know, you were on the board and then eventually the president. How did that come about? Well, I hope I don't come across as being pretentious on this because it's quite the opposite. Bands of America had just started the National Concert Band Festival. And my wife and I were coordinators of that. And in those days, when the computer was a little bit more primitive, she did all of that work. She had a master's in business. She did all that work in organizing the scores and everything. And we were at Whitewater, Wisconsin during the summer symposium, listening to the bands auditioning the first year. And John Painter, who was president of the board then, saw us and we got, you know, kidding around and batting around. And he really liked my wife's work. <laughs> I think he really liked my wife, but that's what it was. And uh, saw, saw her, uh, her work. And at uh, 1992, I think it was, Colonel. Allen, Eugene Allen, who was on the board at that time, was chair of the, the membership committee, and I was standing in the international ballroom after a concert, and he's originally from Texas, and he came up to me and greeted me, and we visited, and he said, oh, by the way, uh, the board has voted for you to be the new member of the board of directors. So, <laughs> What was your reaction? I had, to, I had to go sit down for a while because I was <laughs> kind of an outsider. I was from Texas, and most of the members were from the Midwest area, generally. So, I mean, it was really a shock, and I told my wife, and she was excited. So that's how we uh, we got on there. So we actually started the first year of the Concert Band Festival was 2000, uh, 1992, and my first year was with Midwest was 1992. So I can't tell you what a great honor it was. And in uh, 2009, Ray was, Kramer was president. He was deciding his future. and. He was a lot more active with the Mishishina group, which has played four times at Midwest, by the way. And so he decided to retire uh, in 2008. And in 2009, we had an election and I was elected president. I had been serving as vice president and I was chair of the committee that went over and studied the McCormick Place facility. Uh, and Denny Cincinnati, who's retired from the board and lives in Kansas, uh, came up with a slideshow to show the comparison of where we were 
and moving the advantages and disadvantages of moving to McCormick Place, and we actually couldn't find any disadvantages except that. Right. At that time, there was only one hotel at uh, McCormick Place, and that was the Hyatt. And a lot of people chose anyway to stay at the Hilton and the Palmer House. And by the right. way, sadly, parenthetically, the Palmer House is having to close its doors. I heard right. that. I saw that. Bankruptcy, and what a sad time. I'm afraid that's going to be true of some of the older hotels in Chicago. And of course, yes. in December, we're one of the only things happening in town, so they're always glad to see us. But I was elected president in my first year to serve as president in 2010. And this is my 11th year, and I'll be retiring soon uh, from the board. But it's been a labor of love. And, you know, we'll, I will get into that later, but I don't want to slide anybody or any other discipline, but I can think of no other discipline that affects kids in such a positive way mm-hmm. with so many different qualities than band does. Mm-hmm. It's just, uh, and I've thought about this over and over for my 64 years in this, and I just cannot find any, I get more excited every day about what it means to kids and some of the positive qualities of being in band and orchestra. Uh, have come about because of COVID. And it has proven the social values, for instance, of being in band. Mm-hmm. And some parents were, were saying that was almost more important to them, that their children were different where they'd been closeted at home for three months. And when they got out, even for a drum camp or something, they were totally different because they were with their kids working on a common goal and working together. And that's I just think that that and my faith are the two things in my life that I've that have impacted me more than anything. I hope I can verbalize that more eloquently. But the band is well, just. Well, I, th- uh, I think it's more. I think it's more the way that I've seen. You know, when you start thinking about sixty-four years in music education, that's pretty clear right there. <laughs> so, you know, your, your words are one thing and they're great, but I think anybody that looks at the life that you have led and the influence that you have given to band directors, to orchestra directors, to the, the clinic itself, it's, and, and the national concert band festival as well. I mean, there, there are so many ways that you have proven that to us over and over. Well, I'm going uh, to keep practicing until I get it right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of, so how, I, this is, this is such a big question and I don't, I don't know how you're going to put it into words, but I, you know, I, I've submitted the question to you. So I hope you've gotten some, uh, some time to think about it. How has the clinic influenced our profession? Well, I guess it, it would be hard for me to really answer that, but I'll tell you what we hope. We hope that uh, we have influenced in major ways because we've tried to listen and we've tried to listen to feedback and what what is changing in our industry and our profession. And we depend on constituency feedback. And uh, I, you know, I just communicated with you recently because I want you to be a part of my advisory committee uh, representing the area of the country. and. Uh, the, the advisory committee has been greatly helpful to me, and they've helped us with the actual operation of the clinic, introducing uh, clinics and so forth. It's always a challenge to know what to come up with. And I, can I give you some examples from my Please. perspective? If, when you think about it, there's so many different layers of uh, groups and, 
and descriptions of different groups like small schools, uh, middle schools, elementary bands, high school bands, university bands, adult bands, community bands. And then we go into the international groups. And we try, we've changed and added to our curriculum, as I call it, every year almost to try to address those needs. Recently, we've always had adult bands perform at Midwest, but recently, uh, Herman O was instrumental in this, he's a new, one of the newer members on the board, and he said uh, we got together, and there's a difference in community bands and adult bands, but community bands are really, really important. They may only get to rehearse once a week <laughs> or less, mm-hmm. and they can't play the, the finesse, but they're really important because a lot of those people are doctors, lawyers, and custodians and everything else, and they love to continue playing their horn. That's one good thing. Band and orchestra, those are life skills. Mm-hmm. Those are life skills. You can't say that about a lot of other areas. And they like to continue that. And I always tell people, this is what you're doing. You're starting a sixth grader on a life skill that they can enjoy the rest of their life. Mm-hmm. And so we made a difference in that. And we've added a small school component where we're having clinics directed just for them. Like, I've got 24 kids in my band. What can I do on the marching field? Right. Or how can I do the uh, instrumentation limitations brought on by that? Because these are communities out in the rural areas. They don't have resources. And so I've been really pleased about that. Um, And, of course, we've added the Conducting Institute and several others just to try to respond to change. You know, as Robert Reynolds said, change is inevitable. Growth is an option. And you have to realize that nothing really stays the same. So I would say that we have tried, we have certainly tried to respond to the needs of our constituency. And our attendance has grown every year of professional directors that are there. We had 18,000 plus last year at Midwest. Now that includes everyone, but probably 6,000 or more of those were professional directors. It's hard to give an accurate count because the exhibitors get to use some of their comp uh, registrations to uh, some of their directors. So some of them are their own, uh, the guests of the, the uh, exhibitors. Uh, we added something that I thought was really unique. I had a panel of small school directors do a clinic for me one time, and I can't remember whether before or after. They were just chatting with one another, and they were all from small towns. And they went over and sat down, and I just listened in, and there was this exchange of knowledge, ideas, strategies, whatever, that was just marvelous. So we created what we call a chat room. And this, there's no formal presentation uh, or uh, the or theme. They just go in a room, a clinician, and say, okay. And the questions begin, and they can direct and be absolutely pertinent and relevant to what the, they need. And I want to, I want to expand what I call Oahu. That's that whole area out in front of the exhibits, mm-hmm. and more areas there where people can just sit and chat and visit. And there's a marvelous exchange of information and knowledge that happens there. Uh, well, and so Mr. Crane, you may or may not challenge. <laughs> you may or may not know it, but some some folks actually even broadcast podcasts from out <laughs> in that area. Maybe I, I'm not naming any time. names. That yeah. Somebody may have <laughs> may have done that. I, actually, I think this is a cool thing. Jeff did a, an interview with 
um, Lainey Radicky, one of the other directors at Wanda with me, about 30 minutes after we played the last note on stage. And, and I've listened to that a couple of times and it's like, oh my gosh, that's, that was so special to have that, to, to encapsulate that feeling. But that area that you're talking about, if you just stand still, number one, you're going to see everybody in the profession at some point. And yes. number two, if you open your ears, you're going to hear enough to make your group better. And I must say that dynamic marching wouldn't exist without the Midwest Clinic. You know, when I, fir I first came to the Midwest Clinic in 2003, quick story, I went with Michael Pote, director of bands, uh, the concert bands at Carmel High School. And um, I remember I didn't bring a suit. I think I had slacks and a nice shirt. And he's like, bro, rookie move. Like everybody <laughs> wears a suit. <laughs> And I was like, oh, it's that kind of thing. And and immediately my first impression was this is a classy joint. And then my second memory of that, uh, 2005, Carmel got to play there and uh, had a great experience watching that. But I got to meet with the people from Hal Leonard and we talked through uh, the first video that Dynamic Marching ever put out on how to teach marching. And I met with the people from Hal Leonard there at the Midwest Clinic. And that's that was the birth of the professional, the business of dynamic marching. And uh, ever since, it's been a place for me to meet with people who I need to meet with and, and meet new people and exchange ideas. And it's the energy is unreplaceable. And I I'm so sad that it's not happening this year in person. I'm excited for what it will be, but like, over the years, that definitely has been a moment in the year of like, okay, well, clear the calendar for that weekend. And then like when it's over, you clear the calendar for a year from that day, you know, and it's just an awesome, the vibe in the, in that waiting area even is so uh, energizing. Thank you for that. Uh, we're, we plan to expand what you were just talking about there. The podcast, that area, that area that's there. Yeah. We should just call it the dynamic marching podcasting wing of dynamic. <laughs> I'll get, get into the, uh, yeah. the we'll see if it passes by the board. <laughs> go, by, go virtual, if you will, this year. I'll get into that decision later. You know, I hope that's our greatest hope because that's what we're there for is to, we're there to, to try to address the needs uh, of our constituency. One thing that helps us is technology now because the blue vest. Yeah. Uh, give us, we record the attendance in every room so right. we know what's resonating and what's not. And that, right. that's been a real help for us to have a, uh, a surveys. Vandico kids are terrific about helping us. They're a valuable component of what we do. And we couldn't do it without them. They're yeah, I don't think everybody... Right. They don't understand that, you know, it's just like with any good event, you've got to have a team of of, of yeah. kids to work it and make it go. And Vandercook College of Music supplies all of those blue vests, right? That's yeah. what, that's the, the term. And they're, they're different. Uh, there's some that don't wear a blue vest. They wear something else, but they're moving all that equipment all over the place. Right. You know, they're moving three gram marimbas down to the first floor from ballroom and they don't get a lot of notice. I think they dress in black just to try to blend it. So, mm -hmm. and, but they're doing that. And, and, these kids are rehearsing right. all this time too. Well, this, because they do this a concert as well. All, well, they go and rehearse with the band. And so they've, they've got all these different arms in the fire. So we're implementing them. They have a, uh, with our, I'll call it virtual uh, Midwest. They're going to be part of the Midwest. I think they're going to show up in front of the bean and, 
in front of the Hilton and things like that. Just to oh, kind that's of great. The atmosphere. Well, and that's, that's, you know, the next question that we're going to go into is, you know, I'm sure the decision to go to a virtual clinic, uh, while it's necessary, it was a tough one. I know you and I spoke about it at length. Uh, and I also imagine with that decision came some opportunities to innovate and adapt like you guys have done in different years as well. So if I've never been to the Midwest before, what will I experience with the virtual version? And then I'm going to ask you, so if I've been there for decades, what will I experience as part of the virtual Midwest? Well, that, that was on our mind the entire time we, we uh, examined this. You must understand, uh, we selected all the groups to perform in 2020, uh, back in uh, March. And it was not until May that we decided in middle May, at least, before we decided we're not going to be able to bring all of them in for the June meeting, which we always bring them in and two of the facilities and all the uh, details about performing. And that was at that point that we canceled that meeting and made it uh, more of a virtual uh, contact with them. Uh, but we, when we finally got to this and realized we're not going to be able to have now this is this is six or seven months out and before we finally came to the realization this is not going to happen in december if you remember the history of covid then so then we began to go what are we going to do and so it, this was a, a a period where we came together and decided this will work we let's try this and come finally coming to a decision okay this is what we're going to do and uh, I don't know if it's okay to advertise other groups, but Kelly uh, Bryan, our executive, found bandrecord.com, who seemed to have the platform that would really be adequate for the number of registrations we're anticipating and the volume of materials and content that we'll have. So uh, it's, and it has been different every day. And I'll just tell you this. I was talking to Tom Moore, who's our logistics person that handles all of our contracts and the hotels and the uh, liaison with the AV and the convention center. And we agreed that all the previous seven or 10 Midwest clinics piled together would not <laughs> match the challenges that we've faced in uh, putting this one year's on. <laughs> It has just been a technological challenge. It's been a human factor challenge. Uh, but slowly by slowly, last week, guys, it finally became where we could see, began to see a picture of what we're going to do. And I'm really getting, I was really nervous. You can imagine. Yeah. Uh, come back yeah. on my shoulders. And I was really getting nervous. But last week, I began to say, huh, I can see a picture of it now. It's beginning. You put your, fingers on it and it's going to make sense. And I'm really excited about it. I'm, I'm really excited about seeing some of the performances going way back that can't be re replicated any other way, the, the video. And that was another challenge too. Uh, you know, the copyright issues in audio are not that great. The challenges of video copyrights and licensing is, is almost insurmountable. And it was. Now oh, this yeah. is not a criticism of publishers. It's just that the, the, what it, the COVID virus is having on their work. And 
some of the publishers were European, or and one publisher never responded. Uh, and but the the composers that did were wonderful and were very glad to help us in any way they could. But it's still a nightmare to try to go through all that licensing and the legal ramifications. So that was one challenge that we faced right away. Uh, so I hope that. Uh, this is giving you a little idea of what we went through, and we're still going through that. We have a board meeting every two weeks now, a virtual board meeting. And we may continue to do that. We're getting so much work done. I bet. <laughs> and we've never done that. We've met only on site and uh, three times a year, at plus the conference. And uh, we meet every two weeks now and review what's going on, update, and we need to fix this or fix that. and. They may not last but 30 minutes. I try to move them fast, but uh, we are getting a lot of work done that way too, and just staying up with it. One of the, the benefits of this is that they can have professional development credit. They can print out their uh, certificate for that. Uh, if they, the academic rigor involved and required, they have to watch all of a block, for instance, which is basically a hour and 45 minutes or so. They'll have to watch all the content in there to get that, but that's the academic requirement or a rigor requirement. But they can print off their own certificate. I thought that's pretty pretty cool uh, for those that want it. And congratulations on your performance at Midwest last year, by the way. That was a <laughs> tough program. Played well. Well, well thank you. I, I appreciate that a lot. There were a lot of people who made that happen for several years I think that's one of the interesting things that I, I found from that. You can't just one year decide, I think we'll do Midwest next year. Uh, no, it's it's about, I would say, at least a three-year preparation and then multiple years before that, getting the program ready. So um, uh, it, it was very much a mountaintop experience like Jeff was talking about earlier. And I, it was funny. I was watching a video of it actually just yesterday. And it was uh, after our last piece. And I remember bowing there and just stopping for a little bit and saying, hold on to this. Like you need to remember what this is for a long time because there are going to be some tough days. And this is what they produce. Those tough days produce these great experiences. So I think for everybody who does at Midwest. Master of ceremonies for these groups. That's the one thing that we tell them. Savor this moment. And if you will ask that trumpet player in 1980, he will tell you what a great <laughs> moment that was. Well, we, we've kind of teased that. So, so tell us the story of when you played in 1980. I remember you told me the you, you told me the composer of the piece and then the soloist that was there. So I'll, I'll let you tell the story. <clears throat> uh, I came to spring in 1979, and so at the end of that year. Uh, I had been going to Midwest, of course, and so I said, this would be a neat trip for these kids, and I was brand new to the, the school. And so I submitted a recording and got accepted. And by the way, two other bands there, these are very obscure directors, but one of them was John Whitwell at the Huron High School <laughs> in Ann Arbor, sure. Michigan, had his band on the same program. And Tom Verschillo, Meridian High School in Mississippi, <laughs> was the other bet. And we tried to get an audio presentation to put on this just 
each of us would have a five minute piece or less as a trio, you know, and yeah. it didn't work out. So we were not, uh, not able to do that. But anyway, uh, we, uh, we closed with a Claude Smith arrangement of the hymn tune, uh, praise to the Lord, the almighty. And, uh, it has, he wrote an antiphonal brass group. Now this is when we're in the grand ballroom. So, uh, we closed with that and we put the antiphonal brass group up there and Chubbin was in the, the uh, brass group that played in the balcony. And it was a, a great way to end the concert. The band, I was really proud of them. They really did well. But Kevin Setatol, who's now the director of bands at Michigan State University, was uh, in the balcony playing that. And I was really, uh, you know, today's standard, I don't know. I, I finally found a recording, actually, that I'm having dubbed from the old 33 and a third, you know, onto a CD. Oh, that's great. And uh, so I'm going to play that. I had picked a different piece, a shorter piece, if we were going to get to do this. But uh, he was in the band and a lot of other kids, and I hope to have a reunion of that group someday. I'm pretty sure we mentioned Kevin on every other episode of that yeah, band life. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but I'm a little a bit of a fanboy for Kevin said it all. And, he, you know, fortunately, he got to come and work the band before we came to Midwest, and it was just... Uh, it was a master's degree in and of itself. I just remember sitting there writing furiously as he was rehearsing the group pretty effortlessly. I mean, it, he, it was just coming so naturally and I was like, Oh man, <laughs> I've got to figure this out. Uh, it was, it was impressive. So well, I, he I guess all he, that from his high school band director. You know? I, that's exactly what I was going to say. <laughs> I, he even mentioned that I'm a couple just of times. Kidding. Hey, <laughs> it was a pretty good trumpet section, and don't tell them this, but I just followed them. <laughs> I started them and let them go. There oh, you man. go. Hey, believe me, I I did the same thing in Come Sunday, so I I totally understand. <laughs> oh, I don't know so, whether I could conduct that piece or not. Oh my goodness! Wow. Uh, so, Omar Thomas is got is being interviewed. For instance, uh, uh, Tim Austin Hodge was having a just a dynamite interview with Omar that's going to be on there. Oh, and, wow. And then they're recording now a record, uh, interview with uh, Wynton Marsalis. And wow. I've had non-music people say they want to watch that interview. Right. He's, you know, he's very famous. So we've got oh those goodness. little tidbits in there. And we're also, I, I don't know how much you know or has been publicized, but the, the Hiroshima wind orchestra played in 2017 and they just knocked everybody out well they're going to do a special recording uh of a new robert Taggart symphony that will be world premiere oh, wow. during this and they are they're really i mean they're really good as good goes they're better than that and uh, <laughs> also the navy band is going to do some real there it was their normal year to come the rotation, yes. and of course they can't come, so they're doing some special, uh, very special things for us. Uh, but most of those are going to be smaller uh, arrangements for uh, limited, not necessarily chamber music, but just arrangements uh, for smaller instrumentation. And I think that'll be really effective because people are kind of looking for pieces like that. Right. A lot of the Canadian brass are going to be there. They're always terrific. And uh, let me just throw this in here right quick. One of the difficult decisions we had was what to do with clinicians and performing groups. I, I ask a lot of people about that. I have my own feelings. And sure enough, we said, it's not their fault. 
that they're not getting to come this year. And rather than say, sorry, we'll give you a little certificate or something, they said, no, they've earned that right, and uh, they need to come back uh, next year. So they're getting that invitation to come back in 21. Wow. The sad part is that some of them may not be able to, and of course we'll have auditions to replace them. And confidentially, (laughs) they're all on a radio broadcast, uh, the COVID is affecting different middle schools in different yes. ways. And one of the middle schools coming is in a more rural area, terrific right. band, and they've not been effective. So they're all in person rehearsing. Another terrific band, uh, exemplary band program is a hybrid situation. Mm-hmm. And the director says it, they just cannot prepare the music to that level. So right. we're, we're really concerned about them and hoping that things will clear up in the spring where they'll be able to prepare, uh, prepare. their programs. It won't hit the high schools that bad. We asked well, the uh, clinicians to reapply, but uh, I know that a lot of them be selected anyway. Right. Well, but I think it's different in applying to speak versus applying to perform. There's just, you know, having gone through that process, there is a lot that you have to do. And, uh, it is, you know, you and I spoke about this and I think that it, it's, it speaks very highly to honor those kids, most importantly, who did the work to make those recordings and spend the time, especially when you think about the seniors who, you know, one, one of, one set of them would have been compromised to graduation. They knew they weren't going to get to play at Midwest, but they're compromised to graduation. But then you, you also, hit the next juniors who are now seniors and you know, they get hit with the same thing. And boy, I I have to tell you that even now we speak of the Midwest. (laughs) It's, it was such an, a pivotal experience for the kids and myself. And we actually were just talking about it this past Friday. We had a student come back from college and uh, we, we had our CDs out. And so I was giving her the CD for it. And she was like, I can't wait to hear this. I'm, I'm, I'm so excited because I've been thinking about it for a while. And, and I, I mentioned to some friends that we played at Midwest and they had heard that Wanda was playing there. And she was like, man, I, I knew it was a big deal, but I didn't know how big a deal. And I, I would say that that's for those first band directors that are just getting out there. I had heard of the Midwest, but I didn't know what a big deal it was. Yes. I, you can say something, well, it's a big deal. But until you're standing there or watching it online, it is, it's a big deal. So if you've never been, this is actually a perfect one to start because once you watch it, you'll definitely want to go back to its being live. And uh, I, I think, you know, Richard, you were saying that for those directors that have been there for many years, these, these performances, and I, I want you to speak a little bit. I think you're doing a few performances that are not current right you're doing something a little bit special with that uh 2000 the year 2000 united states air force band concert the uh eastern wind ensemble i think they were 2004 if i remember right uh, a band and i can't remember which one it was but uh 1997 i believe so all these have to be remastered by the way right it's another another technical challenge because uh, they were in different formats back into the 90s. Right. And uh, so they're being all updated and so forth. Uh, one, one performance, 2008, uh, uh, 
Everything was before 2008 because that's when they stopped videotaping. Right. Well, 2009 was the last videotape, but I don't think we're having any then. So, yes. I think that's going to be really interesting to see how, you know, it's sort of like if you go back and listen to some of the Ravelli cast tech recordings where you can hear the quality, like you can tell that these kids could just play, but maybe, maybe the recording quality is a little bit different, but you can still feel how impressive bands and ensembles, uh, orchestras, all of the things were and have yeah. been for a very long time there. I think that's that's one of the things I'm actually really excited about in in well, this Midwest experience. Some of those recordings are before 1995, and uh-huh. there was no <clears throat> video recording going on. But right. uh, that's why I wanted to try to go back at some point in our history, and we can do this, and play some audio recordings of uh, Ravelli's Hobart, Indiana band in the 30s that won the national championship. And actually, it was Harry Bijan that was in Cast Tech. Oh, ex- exactly and, right. I said Ravelli, didn't I? I'm sorry, Bijan, yeah, yes. That's all right. Uh, what was confusing for me was trying to keep up with Manelli and Ravelli. <laughs> <laughs> Manelli was at, I think, Ohio University, <laughs> not Ohio State. But I had to keep up with those. So, But, yeah, that would be great. Uh, a lot of this, again, it had to do with the limitations. of uh, We wanted it to, to be video number one yeah and so that we originally backed ourselves into a corner about what was available but mark moretta mark custom records has done a marvelous job of doing all the, the licensing and remastering and helping us with it so all that to say that you know even if you've been for the last several decades i think this one is still going to be worth your time because of course the cl- you know the clinics are going to be great you know the information is going to be sound but there's also going to be some things that you haven't been able to see before like revisiting some of these i would i would imagine there those recordings are chosen for a reason and uh, being able to see that history and some uh, i re- actually was at that 2004 uh, Eastman Wind Ensemble, because I think that was with Mark Scatterday. Isn't that correct, Mr. Craig? Yes. He yeah, also it, played in uh, 2009. Right, he, yes. Uh, he upped this open. Yes. And he wants but, to come back. But, I, uh, remember, now, yeah. I remember being at that concert and thinking, I don't know what a band's supposed to sound like now. <laughs> and I mean that in a good, I mean that in a, a great way, because I, you know, if you close your eyes... And they were playing, you know, because they did some, you know, smaller works being, being the wind ensemble. But like, I couldn't tell that this was the oboe, the bassoon and the English horn playing together. It melded into a new sound. I couldn't hear yeah. the trumpets and the horns. play. It was a new sound. And it really changed the way that I was. And, and Eastman has always been known to really raise the standard. Uh, so no disrespect to anything before that. But I just hadn't been live yeah. in the hall yeah. and not known what was playing. I think we have incredible. a Kasai in there somewhere, too. We have Tamagawa uh, from Japan. So we have two or three uh, international groups, too. I think uh, everybody has eight. that story about Midwest. Do you remember when we heard X, Y, or Z? And I, I love right. that about Midwest. The standards are still so high. I mean... I can tell you right now, Mount Sai High School, um, 
their their jazz band Bill Leathers over there, a good friend mm, of mine. Yes. When I heard that high school jazz band, I was like, "What? That no, that's not a high school jazz. That's a professional jazz band." And now every time I hear a high school jazz band from now on, I'll be comparing it to that performance at Midwest because it was so out of this world. Oh, one of the my thrills was uh, being on uh, the stage, walking up and trying to give Doc Severance an award. <laughs> and that wonderful group, jazz group, that backed him up from Elmhurst College, Peter Griffin, mm-hmm. and, uh, and the other gentlemen. And uh, that was one of the greatest thrills I've ever had, was standing up there, and as it turned out, he just started kind of giving me a hard time on stage. I don't know whether you were there or not. And I thought, oh, my gosh, what am I going to do? <laughs> and uh, so I just went with him, and I just battered <laughs> back with him. And uh, everybody thought it was a rehearse, and are you kidding me? <laughs> I didn't want to go up there because he's, you know, Doc Severson. Doc Severson, laying, yeah, let's be serious. out there, and we're going to go up there and give him an award, and the people are going to say, get off the stage. And so Dick Duscombe and I went up there, and of course, we couldn't get a right start, and he would say, there's Colonel Gabriel in the audience. And he went on <laughs> with five or six minutes telling about Colonel Then he would, you know, and I said, Lord, give me some lines to use here, because he's, <laughs> he's killing me. <laughs> and, but finally he did, he came over and messed with my, my, my handkerchief and my, anyway, as it turned out, nobody had a photo or any of that. But the next morning, I got to go downstairs with him. I sought him out, and we had about five minutes alone. I have some photos of that. Oh, and wow. he and I just had the greatest visit. My high school band, when it marched in the, the Tournament of Roses Parade, they had this pre-parade uh, thing where bands put on a field show. Yeah, band fest. So my band did a field show, two minutes, one take, and that was it. And we gave him a Stetson hat. Of course, he didn't remember that. So it's really good to re- reminisce about that in the 1974 Tournament of Roses Parade. Wow. My youngest son was born the night before. My wife <laughs> never quite gave, forgave me for being there when our youngest son was born. Every band so director has that girl story. I had a big picture of Crane. Uh, Stephen Crane welcomes his father home. <laughs> Oh, so, my uh, goodness. That, my son said, you just wanted another tax ex- uh, exemption for 1973, Dad. <laughs> I, but uh, oh. anyway, is this, how long is this broadcast? As long as it needs to be. And I, yes, <laughs> oh. you're fine. No, you're don't, fine. Don't say that. You're I, me going I was going to say, I only have three autographs of famous people. One is an astronaut named David Wolf from the Indianapolis area. One is Doc Severinsen is one, and one is Wynton Marsalis. <laughs> so there you've you already know. mentioned two of my heroes. Well, so, they're going to be there. Well, Doc, I think Doc might be, uh, we have uh, some uh, statements like 30 seconds or a minute by yeah. prominent music educators just offering encouragement uh, and hope. And uh, Doc may be uh, one of those. I, I'm, don't take my word for that. Uh, there's so many details and so many individuals involved. We could never thank everybody, guys, for all right. the, the contribution, for the, the content, the presenters, the people that have worked on this, our staff, the board. The board introduces every member of the board, introduces every event. Right. And it's just 20 seconds long just to, to have a touch of class and 
and they deserve to be applauded. Well, I think everyone needs encouragement right now and inspiration, and um, I'm already inspired thinking about it. Right. Can you imagine the burden of being president of the Midwest Clinic Board of Directors? I cannot. Mm. I mean, no. I lie awake at night. <laughs> but it's such a great honor, and... Uh, especially since my wife passed away, it really keeps me occupied. And that, that's a selfish thing to say, but it's just a, a labor of love and I love working with the board and the staff and all the directors that are coming. That's been so rewarding to meet directors from all of the United States. And I was communicating today with guys in Utah, New yeah. Mexico, California, and that's just really, really special to be there. And we added well, think- the United Sound. Uh, a couple of years ago, played America the Beautiful with the Coast Guard band, and the military bands have been super about that. Now, if you remember, are uh, familiar with United Sound? Oh, for sure. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We uh, absolutely and, are. Uh, and last year, I wish we had a a, a film of it because the uh, Colonel Schofield is just fabulous person, and he they just without hesitation did it, and I forgot what the piece was now, but that wasn't. But these kids were on stage, and he gave them all a little medal, Air Force medal. Oh, wow. And, oh, it was, you know, those kids, it just means so much to them. And the mentor kids are the ones who really are blessed because mm-hmm. of the things that they do for these special students. And that's just another little element that we've added, and we're, we're going to put that on our uh, website if we can dig wow. something up that's, you know, a, a video of it. That's fantastic. But my, I don't want to interrupt you, but one thing that makes me appreciate all of this so much, guys, is that I'm from a little small town in South Texas, and there was no band program in the 40s. Uh, And in 19... 49, a band man came to, to town. I was a sophomore in high school and a guy graduated in college after World War II and came to town and started a band. <laughs> he used the think system a lot too, if you remember the music band. <laughs> and, uh, yep. So I was a beginning student at a sophomore in high school and there were only 70, uh, 74 kids in the entire high school, grade four grades. And there were only six in my graduating senior class. But I was in the top 30% academically, I want you to know that. (laughs) And uh, so I didn't have a really good start in music, but I fell in love with it. And I I went to a school in San Antonio, a small school, Trinity University, who just moved to a new campus. And every instrumental faculty member was an adjunct. They didn't have any full-time. And uh, the techniques courses, I learned the wrong. I'm sure on the clarinet. And can you imagine going out and teaching? And you know? So I, I didn't know hardly anything when I graduated in college. And I, I had to go to the Rio Grande Valley of Texas, and it was just an enclave down there in the 1950. Uh, I graduated in 1956 and was uh, in college and just drafted in the Army, but the Korean War had went down, and so they uh, actually got a 4F medical because I had a bad knee at that time and uh, deferment. And I didn't have a job. 
in October, so I got a part-time job in the San Antonio State Mental Hospital. Now, Bobby, wow. I was a staff member there, not a patient, okay? Okay, was, all right, just we're, we're trying to make yeah. that very clear. <laughs> but I had to convince the guards, because it's like a prison, you know, you drive out of there, and they look at you, and I said, trust me, you know, let me see your credentials. Anyway, and so I was out of the job. A band director in Rio Grande Valley got killed in a dangerous highway down there in uh, November. And so I went down with some buddies and looked at it. And I was without a job, and I was the only warm body in the state of Texas. So what could they do? So <laughs> they hired me. And my first salary was $2,900 a year. Seems reasonable. $2,900 a year. Oh, man. And so you don't. You don't do a lot of partying on that. <laughs> and, uh, but what made it really challenging for me is that I didn't have a lot of teacher preparation. It was just not really good. I don't blame the university. It's just the way things were in those days. And uh, uh, marching band, uh, I, only thing I learned in college was that it was guide right. You know, Sometimes it would take longer to get to the 50-yard line from the end zone than others. And I went to Valley, they were using a measured step, and I said, what is that? And they were the finest marching bands you could imagine, but they were block band, kind of doing military-type drills, but eight to five instead of six to five military. So that's the kind of what I jumped into. So I just kept on my knees praying every night, Lord, I don't want to go back to my dad's ranch because there's cattle were starving there. And uh, I just kept at it. And that's one of the things I, one of your question is, what would one of the things that you would say to young people? Persevere. Persevere. In the Bible, this persevere is also endurance. And that's what really has helped me and my faith, which I, I readily would like to say that, that because of my faith, I was able to get through lots of tough times when I was single and after that. But uh, after uh, dealing with kids who were grieving over their band director who was before me, who was doing a great job, and I was not mature enough to deal with that. So it was really stressful for me. But I hung in there, and with God's help, I survived, and we actually made a first division before I left the Valley. But the Valley bands in the Valley, Rio Grande Valley, Texas, and they still are great. But they were... It was just a pocket of the most amazing teaching. No private teaching. I mean, it was like an island down there. No uh, resources, but just wonderful teachers. You wouldn't know any of the names I know if I would tell you. One of them was Luther Snavely, who ended up at uh, Notre he Dame. He was my band director at Notre Dame. Oh, wow. No yeah, he was. Well, we always knew him as L.M. Snavely, and uh, we got to induct him into the Texas Hall of uh, Fame uh, few years ago. Anyway, he was a, we kind of buddied around. In fact, we went to Vandercook one summer together and he said, Dick, I've never seen Niagara Falls. Now we're in Chicago, right? <laughs> and dumb me, I didn't know any better. So I was, a, I drove to Chicago. From Texas. Said, so I said, okay, I've never seen Niagara Falls either. So we drove all the way to Detroit through Canada and got to Niagara Falls. We stayed there about 15 minutes, and in Southern Drawl, he said, golly, that's a lot of water going over there. I'm dying right now. And I kid you not, we turned around and came home. 
I, I don't even know what to say. I, and uh, <laughs> anyway, so I always gave him a hard time. We always called him Elliam. But he, he was in the Valley in a middle school, and then he went to McCullen High School, and then he went to the University of Texas and uh, got his advanced degrees in the Ole Miss, and then he ended up at, uh, he was a middle school director in Harlingen, Texas, when I went there. And uh, then a, a high school opened up, and he went there. And he was also the state band chair uh, right after the honor band. I, I kind of wrote a history of that recently, with along with Dick Floyd and, Joseph Frank was in Harlingen as a high school band director. And he, when I was still in the Valley, he said, I'm going to move to Richardson, Texas and start a band program. And we said, what in the world is Richardson, Texas? And the rest is history, you know. Mm-hmm. That turned out to be the, the real standard for the state. And that was, mm-hmm. his name was Joe Frank. And a wonderful musician, a wonderful man. I don't know if I've ever shared this story on the podcast, but... One day we were not playing well in an indoor rehearsal and uh, he stopped the band and he said, how many of you were drum major of your high school band? And I'm not kidding. Three fourths of the room raised their hand. And he goes, that's what I thought. You guys think you're pretty special. Um, You're not playing very well right now. And you're a part of this band now. So let's work harder. (laughs) And we were all like, oh man, he just nailed us. One of the things that I learned first, the epiphany moment for me after I got out of college is one day when I was kicking bus tires because we didn't do very well at contests. And a man that became my first mentor came up to me and said, hey, what are you complaining about? How many times have you ever had anybody in your band hall to listen to your band? Have you ever asked for help? Do you think you know everything? Well, I thought, sure, I know everything. I'm a college graduate. And that was an epiphany moment for me. And that's when I began to camp out on doorsteps and have everybody I could come in and help me. And I ran across a young man recently who was told by a mentor who should have been. The mentor was trying to say, let me let me give you some ideas to help. And he says, I don't need that. That is incredible response. We all need that. Today, if I could learn something about how to do something better, I'm there. And that... Uh, all the way through, and what a wonderful mentoring profession. Where I was talking to Cam Stacey the other day about this, and I said, hey, Bobby Lambert's going to interview me tonight. Give me something to say. <laughs> and, of course, she did. And uh, she's never shy about that. Bless her heart. Thank you, Cam. <laughs> we love you, and, Cam. Uh, I want to share some things she said. But uh, that uh, the mentoring is, this is the greatest mentoring profession in the world. And, you know, yeah. you're going to try to beat somebody by a tenth of a point at anything you can do to do them. But you'll also sit down with them and share anything they need to know to help them get better. Uh, and I, I enjoy that. I can tell them all the things not to do. <laughs> it don't work. That works too. And uh, But it's a great mentoring profession. And I haven't found one person in our profession that's not willing to stop what they're doing and help somebody. And people, well, I'm afraid to ask someone. Fennell one time said, well, why don't you do more of this? And more of that, and he says, because they don't ask me. Mm. Frederick Fennell. Mm. And, uh, and also, and you know this, I know you know this, both of you. It has to be about kids. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It has to be about kids. And everything we do at Midwest, you asked me a while ago, and I made this little speech at the end of 2019. Whatever we do at Midwest has to filter down, trickle down, and affect 
students in a positive manner or else we fail. They are the ones that we need to be thinking about all the time. And kids have kept me young for 86 years. And I went over to a band rehearsal by Thursday and just had the greatest time just watching kids. Be discipline, energy, pride, playing and, and doing all that stuff. And it, it just, anyway, it has to be about kids. We have to learn to adapt and we should never stop learning about our craft. Never stop learning about our craft. And when I've taught 10 years, I know all, all I need to know. No, mm. it doesn't work that way. One thing is that things change. I talked about it a while ago. So perseverance, faith has to be about kids. Adapt. Never stop learning about our craft and seek mentors. Hmm. Sorry. Well, no, that's on. I could <laughs> no. not agree with you more. Oh my gosh. It, it like, I'm just sitting here like with chills right now. I, we've gotten to interview some incredible people on that band life. And this is, this is going to be one of, one of those, um, because it's, it's so special to hear somebody who there's no question that you can do, you know, you, you put your money where your mouth is, you know, that like what you say you live and you do. And, you know, when you read the bio, when you see the things that Richard Crane has done, it's just, it's completely mind blowing. Like I was trying to get through it. Like, Oh my gosh, I, I've been teaching for 20 years and I'm at like, the second year of Richard Crane right here. Like this is, I'm not even close, <laughs> but then, but then uh, when you hear it, like what you're saying is it has to be about kids. Like if you just start there and do your dead level best for the kids that are in front of you each day, well, that's enough. The thing that I've received, I have to, I'll give credit to first of all, the students who got me that and my colleagues who worked with me. And when I retired or moved out of the classroom in, two, in uh, 1982, uh, then I, but I worked with adults rather than kids uh, in staffing and personnel and that sort right. of and supporting them. Uh, the thing I were, did was to hire smart people and support yeah. them. Yeah, when you look at the, the bands that you helped, you know, not only you, when you were out of the classroom, the bands that you helped create and mentor that's pretty impressive alone you know don't don't even look well, at anything else but that that alone would be something worth talking about but then to see your influence on so many national levels is is pretty impressive and you know mr crane we can't thank you enough for taking time to spend well, with us one tonight. Last can i have one last please you take you the bet. last word i i forgot something here i, I mentioned her a while ago but uh when I moved, I uh, spent four years in the Valley, then I moved to Central Texas to a junior high school that was really good. The, the guy I took, whose place I took, was a really good teacher, and we got third in third in the honor band uh, in junior high. That's uh, six, uh, seven, eight, nine. And uh, so I inherited some really fine players, and we were able to do a lot more. But uh, I, I, that's where I met my wife. And I won't go into all the details of how I met her, but it was in church. And, uh, but uh, she was a sophomore in college. We got married, and then I finished her degree, and she started teaching, and then we got our master's together. But I could not have done anything in my career without her. Uh, 
she was on her track to get her doctorate degree at a, a, a community college, junior college, and become an administrator. The president loved her and was going to offer her this position. And I walked in one day and I said, sweetheart, have you ever heard of Spring, Texas? Mm. I had never myself. She said, no. Well, they've offered me a job and I need to go. I think we ought to go look at it. I've been in Belton for 15 years. And so without hesitation, she said, well, let's go take a look. So she gave up her promising university level career as an administrator without one moment hesitation and we came to spring and school district i was hired and uh she became a middle school typing teacher and she did all my i learned more about english grammar i didn't sound like it but I, from her uh and she wrote all my documents letters papers she kept up with all of them the, uh, for 17 years, she did all of the record keeping for the National Concert Band Festival, which became the National Concert Festival. Uh, all of those records she did tediously at night. Oh, this call came in, at, this email came in 30 seconds ago, so he gets dibs over this piece and that, you know, that can't replicate. But I really needed my sweetheart and uh, whom I miss greatly, uh, the love of my life, Gail, who uh, passed away in 2016. And, uh, but I need to give her credit for anything that I've done in my career. It was really because of her and her support and love. That's so that, beautiful. We're all grateful for Gail and, and her yeah. contribution to music education through you. Wow. Um, Mr. Crane, thank you so much. I, uh, I, I hope yeah. people will join into the Midwest. It's not, I do too. We have no idea how it will be received because we've never done this before. But it's not without intentional well-intentioned effort. I would just say, you know, all the band, all of us band directors are out there. We're flying by the seat of our pants. So we know what that is. We know exactly what that is. And we, we've asked our kids and our parents and our administration to suspend belief and, and give us a little bit of grace and trust. And I think that's what we're saying to about the Midwest clinic this year as well. But with each of those things that we've kind of extended ourselves on, some great things have come out of them. And I have no doubt that the same will be true of the Midwest Clinic as well. You know, it, we have to have a little bit of faith. We have to have a little bit of trust. But I guarantee yeah. you, you won't, re, you won't regret coming to that and seeing it and then, you know, setting your plane ticket so that you can come live, hopefully, in 2021, the December of 2021. Absolutely. So. So in person in Chicago, (laughs) (laughs) absolutely. We're all hoping and praying for that. Yeah, Yeah, very much. Very much. Well, thank you very much. It's been wonderful dismissing with you two. And yeah, I appreciate it very much. And the opportunity to talk about Midwest. uh, Yeah. We, people can find information about the, the organization and about the clinic on midwestclinic.org. That's where That's you should correct. go to. You can even go to, I think you mentioned banddirector.com a little bit earlier as well. There's uh, some messages from you that are there. And then I know that you guys will have some things posted on Midwest Clinic as well, but registration is open. The price is really nice for this year. So, um, you know, take some of that money that you would uh, we're going to spend on traveling there. It's just a fraction of that this time. Sign go. up for the virtual Midwest 
you won't regret regret it. Mr. Just, the exhibitor component is probably unsurpassed. Uh, the exhibitors yeah. have been just absolutely blown away by what uh, Dave Knox has designed and Kelly uh, Brown have designed for that. We thought we'd have about 50 exhibitors. And mm-hmm. we have, I think, the last count was 130. Wow. That are signed on. And they're getting, they're getting a lot. And we did not, we tried to take advantage of them. We made it as reasonable as we could. They've appreciated that and thanked us. But it's really dynamite. I mean, there's some, even some performances and a chat area. And anyway, I forgot about the chat. There's a chat component to this, but I won't go into that. It's just one more well, element that they can go into. Yeah, I have no you doubt know, that you Harry have- Waters and Pat Sheridan. And yes. Charlotte. They play in front of the exhibits. Well, we, we yes. got them going again, too. In there. <laughs> that, that's, but they're on the, I think they're on the exhibitor thing. They can go in with it. This will be up through January 31st. So if they want to go back and watch any segments of it, their convenience, they can do that. But the December 16th is the first actual broadcast. I'll call uh, it and, broadcast. and when is the deadline for registering? Uh, actually, we don't, I don't think we have a deadline because for some, I was asked that for some who want to register after the fact, I think they can register even up till January. Wow. That's great. So you don't have to watch it live right then. You can, it's, it'll all be in one repository and you can get it whenever you want. But I, I would say that there are going to be many of us who want to watch that live to experience that chat room and be able to, you know. Right. Have thoughts and comments and those things. That that'll be fun. Actually, I'm really I'm really excited about that. I think that'll be a lot of fun. Mr. Crane, thank you again. Thank we you really so much. Oh, it's my honor. Truly honored. Thank you guys very much. Um, and I know that Midwest will continue to do all the great things they've done over the years. And thank you for your leadership in that. And thank you to our audience for taking the time to listen to us. And as always, until next time, I'm Jeff Young and I'm Bobby Lambert. And this has been That Band Life.